Hey everyone, Alex Aragona here. For those of you who don't know, after releasing 100 episodes of The Curious Task, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Our 100th episode will be our last episode only for about a month. We'll be back on a regular schedule starting again on August 4th. In the meantime, we may release some bonus clips and a couple of extras. And of course, we're still taking suggestions and emails like we always have at curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As for now, you can enjoy 100 episodes of The Curious Task, and we're looking forward to getting back on a regular schedule on August 4th. War. What is it good for? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Tom Palmer. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Tom Palmer. Tom is the George M. Yeager Chair for Advancing Liberty and Executive Vice President for International Programs at the Atlas Network, where he works with a worldwide network of think tanks. He's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Before joining Cato, he was an H.B. Earhart Fellow at Hertford College, Oxford University, and a Vice President of the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University, as well as having held other positions in the Liberty Movement. Until the world was switched off, Tom lectured most of the year throughout the world on political science, public choice, civil society, and the moral, legal, and historical foundations of individual rights. He has published reviews and articles on politics and morality in scholarly journals, as well as in publications such as Slate, Foreign Policy, The Spectator London, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Die Welt, and The Washington Post. He's the author of Realizing Freedom, Libertarian Theory, History, and Practice, and the editor of The Morality of Capitalism, After the Welfare State, Why Liberty, Self-Control or State Control, You Decide, and Peace, Love, and Liberty. That last one will form the basis of much of our conversation today. He is also the editor, with William Galston, of Truth and Governance, Religious and Secular Perspectives, which will come out next year from Brookings Institution Press. And he is co-authoring a book with Matt Warner on dignity, democracy, and development for publication next year as well. Tom, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure. It's always wonderful to visit Canada, even if only electronically. It's great to have you on, Tom. And our question today is war. What is it good for? And and obviously, there are many angles to discuss here, and we can cover uh, you know, this from many different directions. And there's definitely more than we can cover in one episode. So I'm just going to pick one place to start, and we'll just go from there. And where I want to start is actually about understanding the way we should think about peace, actually. I really like this in your book. So in the preface to the aforementioned book in the intro, you said, too often peace activists have thought it's sufficient merely to call for peace and to denounce war without considering what institutions foster peace and discourage war and without investigating the economic, social, political, and psychological conditions of peace. And earlier in that area of the book as well, you note that war is about teaching hate So it seems to me that right off the bat in your book, you're saying it's not only enough to see that war teaches hate and counter that, but you need to know what fosters peace as well. Well, I I think that's the key. When I was thinking about this topic in years past, I was reminded of a bumper sticker you used to see all over the United States. And it said, envision an end to world hunger. Hmm. And I asked you, what does it mean? They said, well, you should envision it. I said, yeah, and then? And then what? Well, that's how we're going to end world hunger. Right. Well, that's the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Just envisioning an end to world hunger is going to do it. 
as opposed to figuring out how to produce more food, for example, or things that can be exchanged for food with other people who are better at making food. How can we produce more nutrition? That's how you end world hunger. You just don't sit put on a bumper sticker on your car. And so there are many good-hearted people who do effectively the same. They put a bumper sticker on the car that says, dude, I'm for peace. And they think that they've discharged their responsibility. Well, I think that there are other deep questions. There are causal connections in the world. We don't live in a world of fantasy and magic where you imagine something and then it's going to happen. So we can ask questions about the economic and political structures that are more or less conducive to peace or violence. And then once we figure that out, try to institute those conditions that make peace more likely. And among them are a free press. That's something that many people understand intuitively when people have to debate these things. Uh, you'll have some voices at least saying this is a bad idea. So you don't just get railroaded into it as easily, although the railroading can still happen. It's just less likely. And then very importantly is free trade. If you really want peace, you simply must be in favor of freedom of trade. It is one of the most profound predictors of peaceful relations among nations is not only the degree of freedom of trade, but even the volume of trade between countries. And again, that's well established empirically. Eric Gardsky, <clears throat> in his study uh, that's in the book, Peace, Love, and Liberty, and in his other academic writing, has shown that there is not only democratic peace, but what he calls a capitalist peace. Countries that trade more are less likely to go to war. Now, the, the key to that, again, is we can understand the mechanism. When you have on a border a party on one side and a party on the other side who are trading to mutual advantage, and the war is going to disrupt that, you have at least one voice on each side of the border for peace. It doesn't mean peace is inevitable, but it means it is more likely. And in fact, in this world of ours, that's the best that we can do, is to make bad things less likely and good things more likely. And there are institutional connections a limited representative government, a democratic freedoms, freedom of speech, market economy that is not dominated by big state firms that can be easily bent to the purposes of the state, but are competitive market economies, and trade across borders, freedom of trade. Those are key conditions for making war less likely. And one thing I, I agree, completely agree with, and I like that you said it a little earlier too, was was that you know we're trying to make things less likely. There's no perfect world. And as you're saying, there, there's sort of two sides to this coin, right? Understanding what makes war more or less likely and understanding what makes peace, on the other hand, more or less likely. Of course, um, there's lots you said there, and we can drill down in many different directions. But I'll, I'll take the first one that I thought thought of, which is that uh, towards the end there, you talked about uh, business. And, and, and it's not just at the beginning of the book when it comes to trade and business promotion peace. Uh, in your book, for instance, there's also an interview you did with businessman Chris Rufer. And of course, in that you explored with him the connection between uh, peace and business and trade. Um, I think you covered quite well why business and trade promotes peace. But let me throw out there that often, of course, there's this, this elephant in the room uh, that people bring up. And I think it's important we address it, which is that there are some businesses and that are Basically, their existence is tied to war. That is to say, their business is war. We think of arms manufacturers and things like that. Um, and in a way, the incentives are to 
have war. That's how they stay in business. Um, and this goes from into the from the private sector and also in the public sector too. There, there's there's Pentagon systems of funding that that help m- multiple bits of industry stand up. So, um, is, is that just back to what you're saying before about the state? firm dynamic? Is, is that the main problem there? Is that an exception to the rule you were talking about? No, I don't even think of them exceptions. Those are exemplifications of the principle of a state-dominated economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a global trade that should not be allowed, in my opinion. <clears throat> so trafficking in stolen things or products of slave labor, for example, these things are illegal typically. But then there's this other trade also, which is usually among states, or between states and uh, privileged, crony-dominated firms that make things to kill people, to oppress them, uh, cluster bombs and gas canisters, and you know all these implements of violence and destruction that states purchase. <clears throat> Those are not the same as the trade that people engage in when they're buying tomato paste and uh, let's speak the Canadians uh, hockey gear, right, uh, right, and uh, or wheat or a children's toys, or apparel, or, you know, mattresses, all the other things that enter into international commerce. Those are all implements of peace. I think that the purchase of weapons by states across border are not a part of the model of free trade at all. It's states taking money from taxpayers to buy things in order to harm other people. Now, quite often, the companies that even produce those are themselves state-owned. That's not always the case, but it frequently is. Right. So it'd be hard to argue that it's somehow capitalism that's leading to this when you have socialist states. If you recall, the Soviet Union was a major exporter, one of the largest in the world, of implements of death and destruction. Uh, I think what we need to do is focus on the kinds of things that we don't want to see cross borders, and those are armies and implements of violence. What we do want to see crossing borders are grapefruit and mattresses and foodstuffs and clothing and tourism experiences and software and vaccines and all the other things that people consume. Uh, The more of those that cross borders, the less we will see armies crossing borders. And that, I think, is the bottom line for me. And, and as you pointed out, a lot of those companies are either state owned and and if even if they're not state owned, they're pretty they receive most of their funding from states anyway. So if you remove that lifeline, there goes their business anyway. Well, there's another element there <clears throat> that is important, and that that those uh, companies, whether they're state companies or nominally private firms, are not net producers of wealth. Mm-hmm. They're parasitic uh, on the private economy. Right. You don't make yourself richer by going to war and buying uh, bombs. We heard it even during the Iraq war. Uh, some people argued that the war was just a great thing for the economy, and their argument was as follows. It meant that the U.S. government was buying uh, Humvees and other uh, desert military equipment, sending them to Iraq, and thank God the Iraqi insurgents were blowing them up which meant that they got to make more of them back in the United States for sale to the U.S. government to be sent to Iraq. And that somehow this made us all richer. In fact, it made us poorer because you're producing uh, vehicles and sending them over there, using them to kill other people, and then blowing them up or having them blown up 
so you can make another one. That does not make you richer. It's the accretion of additional capital structure and consumer goods, and the point of capital is to produce goods that ultimately can be consumed. That is what makes a society richer. And squandering your wealth <clears throat> by using taxes to get people to make vehicles that get blown up is not making you richer. It's a, it's a fundamental fallacy. We run into it all the time. Mm -hmm. Frederick Bastiat dealt with this in his wonderful essay, essay, What is Seen, What is Not Seen. Yes. We see that the people who work in the tank factory got more income and there were more jobs there. But at what cost? Well, because at this point, they're not producing things for the consumption of the population. That's the cost. It makes you poorer in the aggregate, even though, and this ties back to those private companies that do make money from state contracts, even though some people will be wealthier, in the aggregate, the society is poorer. And as, and as you said, what we see is you know people may be working in a factory, they have a job, they're assembling tanks, whatever they're doing, and people often start the analysis there and, and walk up from there. But as you rightly pointed out, the chapter one in that story always is someone's money has to be taken and taxed for all that money to be funneled that way anyway to begin with. So that's a very important point. And specifically, it means something else didn't happen. Exactly. Take, take an example about the uh, economic behavior in the United States during World War II, and I'm, I'm confident it was roughly the same. Uh, in Canada as well, but I don't know that for a fact. <clears throat> but during the war, many people argued, wow, this is great for the economy. We're moving toward full employment. Of course, by conscripting millions of people at below market wages to send them off to uh, engage in, in combat, which may or may not have been justified on other grounds, but I'm just going to focus on this economic argument for the moment, uh, and look at all the tanks and battleships and everything being built. Well, what they don't notice, and this is something that uh, Robert Higgs in a series of articles in the Journal of, of Economic History pointed out, is that there were no private vehicles, no trucks, no uh, cars produced during those war years in the United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All of that productive effort went into making Jeeps and, and uh, tanks and so on. Uh, people had uh, uh, meatless days and wheatless days and were encouraged to get together all their pots and pans and donate them and so on, there was an actual decline in consumption. The, the civilian population uh, suffered more accidents. They had lower income. They had less nutrition. They had fewer consumer goods as a consequence of all that effort being put into the war. Now, it, maybe that was the right thing to do, but you can't justify it on the grounds that it was an economic boon or an economic benefit as well. If you're going to make the case that the, uh, Canada and the U.S. should have been in World War II against the uh, uh, Japanese Empire and the uh, Third Reich, uh, make that case, but don't then confuse it by saying, and it was good for us uh, to do that economically as well. It simply wasn't. Right, yeah. No, that, back to that scene-unseen thing, right? there, And it is true in Canada, I can't confirm, like, it's even taught that some ways, that way in some history classes where there's, you know, it's all this fanfare around this idea, like, oh, look, uh, we got we got an economy organized, look at all this efficient production, et cetera, et cetera. But as you said, when you really look at what's going on there, it's it's production in the sense for, for one concentrated purpose, and, and we'll put that aside for a second, as you said, as to whether or not that was justified or not. But the fact is, it was to 
to have things blown up or blow things up. That that's what it was. Do- that's what was happening. And in the meantime, as you said, some people went without food some days. People can go to the store and buy what they want. So as you said, it's very important for people to unconfuse that. That you know, to say it was good for quote unquote the economy. Well, maybe it was good for one purpose, but not quote the economy. That's a whole different discussion. And uh, I'm going to shift our gears a little bit here uh, to to another point you made in the book. Uh, you you made the distinction. Uh, between classes and categories of people and their point of view on war. Uh, you, you say in the book, uh, this is in your, in your essay piece, is a choice. People who have seen wars tend to think about them very differently than political science professors such as Madeleine Albright, who as a U.S. government official publicly and very eagerly defended the bombing of Iraq, which led to the deaths of many innocent people. I, I think it's fair to say that this kind of analysis and point you make doesn't just apply to uh, people in positions of state power or political scientists, but I think we can apply it to just the average citizen, safe and sound in places like Canada and the United States too, can't we? Everyone is always debating war and talking about what we should do or whether or not it's good, but most people are ultimately sitting safe and sound at home talking about these sorts of things. So they obviously have a completely different perspective too. Well, and I think that this is particularly important for people who want to promote peace to understand that the image of all soldiers or all people in the military or putting all career officers is that somehow they're they're baby-killing monsters, that they love killing, and that they're the enemy. And I think this is a fundamental mistake. They're often the ones who understand what war involves, and they are not eager to engage in it. It's the armchair bombardiers, or the laptop bombardiers, as they were called, who think it's just fabulous because they've never actually seen uh, dismembered bodies or headless corpses. They've never seen people blown to bits. They've never watched people, uh, their friends, uh, die around them or see uh, uh, the enemy soldiers burned alive. There are not many people, although there are some, who love those images. And people who have actually experienced it someplace other than a computer screen and a video game uh, usually have a very different attitude. So I think it's a mistake that some people have argued somehow that the the military as such is the enemy, that they're the ones always pushing for war. That just is not the case. Very often, they're the ones more likely to advise uh, politicians to, wait, 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 let's think of some other option. This is a serious matter. And the case uh, of Iraq, I thought, was a very good example of that, that Madeleine Albright just thought, She spoke in these abstract terms about how we're being the exemplary nation and so on. Uh, And it was Colin Powell who said, wait a minute, these are human beings who are going to die as a consequence of this. He was the career military man Mm -hmm. and she was the professor. And I think he had the more realistic attitude towards war and was in fact less enthusiastic about it than she was. And that's been my general experience. So as a, as a matter of fundamentally understanding the world, but also of strategy, people should not start by throwing tomatoes at soldiers uh, or, or military people and claiming that they're just all the enemy uh, promoting war. That factually is not the case. And I think Madeleine Albright was also the, the one who, who said something along the lines of what, what, what's the point of this military if we can't use it or something like that, right? Yes, that was what she said to uh, uh, Colin Powell, and he said he almost had an aneurysm. It was so shocking. Uh, but it is a very common view. 
Uh, I remember many years ago meeting with Rear Admiral Jean Larocque, and I, I mentioned this in the book. It had a big influence on me. He was with a, uh, a think tank that was made up of uh, retired military officers who were very critical of the military budget, of the, the waste, uh, the squandering of wealth, and also of um, military commitments that they thought were foolish or unwise. And he put it very clearly. He said, look, we're being told that we should be uh, teaching eight-year-olds how to uh, read and write, that we're supposed to be uh, helping other countries to learn about the rule of law. He said, we aren't good at any of those things. Our job is to kill the enemy and destroy his ability to harm us. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. He said, if you want to build a bridge, don't come to the military unless it's a bridge of pontoons to run a bunch of tanks over it or mm -hmm. something like that. Then we can do it. But he said, our job is to kill the enemy and destroy his ability to harm us. If you need that, call on us, but don't call on us for anything else. Uh, it reminds me of what I learned uh, as a boy with uh, firearms. Uh, never, ever point a firearm at anything that it is not your intention to kill or destroy. Right. These are not toys. These are uh, very dangerous tools, and you don't just point them at people uh, unless your intention is to discharge the weapon and kill that person or harm that, pers that thing uh, that's in your way. Only when that is your intention should you level a firearm at someone. And under no other conditions ever, I should add as an aside, that's why I'm not at all sympathetic to that couple in St. Louis who pointed firearms at the group passing by in the street and claimed it was self-defense. It was brandishing firearms. And that is a threat of deadly force. And there, in my opinion, should be legal consequences for that. I, I completely agree with your point that often the people, they're sort of like these these laptop warriors, armchair quarterbacks, people that talk about war one way or the other. Then, of course, they haven't experienced war themselves. And in, in a way, of course, we, we can't obviously ever hope that people experience war in order to be able to talk about it. So so what would you recommend people who haven't experienced war to, to truly understand it better and to understand the, the kind of discussion we're, we're having today better? Is it just a matter of studying history with a couple of the other things we discussed today in the back of your mind? What would you advise someone to do, like one or two key things that if they're listening to today to start their journey on that bit of understanding? Well, it's going to depend to some extent on the interests of the person, but let me start with people who like fiction, who like reading, who like reading stories. Uh, two novels that are available in English, they're both written in German, and they're two of the great novels of the Great War, of World War I. Um, Eric Marie Remarque, uh, Investnichts Neues, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, mm -hmm. and Ernst Junger in Stahlgewitter, uh, the, the Storm of Steel. And they present two different views of war. Uh, remark points out the horror of it, the, of these people who just swept up into it and all of the, the degradation and the violence and the suffering that they witnessed and experienced, and for nothing, for nothing. Uh, Ernst Junger was a very robust collectivist. He was an intellectual, a great artist, in my opinion. Uh, and the Storm of Steel is about his experience as a stormtrooper in that same war. Stormtrooper meant the one who jumps into the trenches for the hand-to-hand -hand, uh, combat. 
and uh, he thought it was glorious that it it led us to to live for something higher than this bourgeois capitalist horrible existence of buying and selling things and making things um, that we were all willing to die for this great ideal of the state. So those, I think those two novels, uh, based on real experiences, uh, encapsulate two different views of war. Now I'm unsurprisingly much more sympathetic to Remark, who I think was, uh, uh, got it right. And of course, when the, the Hitler comes to power in the Third Reich, Remark had to escape to Switzerland, his books were burned, and then later came to the United States, uh, where he lived out much of the rest of his life. Uh, whereas Junger was hailed as a hero, a great figure, uh, became a military intelligence officer in Paris during the occupation, and so on. But that's one approach. Read those two stories for people who are interested in, in good literature. They're both very good pieces of literature with dramatically different perspectives. The other thing would be, I'll talk to actual soldiers about their experience. And I don't mean these uh, uh, swaggering types that uh, join their uh, play militias. You've seen some on the American news. Uh, I'm talking about actual combat soldiers. And ask them what it was like and what they experienced. And you'll find sometimes a, a shocking and disturbing stories. And... Uh, it, it was a shattering experience for them. Not many people want to talk about that. Last point, just as an anecdote, uh, people had observed in the past that ground soldiers, infantry soldiers who were actually involved on the front lines, usually had very different memories of great wars than those who were involved in um, supply and logistics and didn't see. Uh, combat for him, it was often a great uh, adventure. You, know, you went off abroad and, and you met uh, pretty girls or handsome boys or whatever, and had uh, romances and so on. Uh, but the experience of the actual troopers on the front line was very different. And then the other group was people who were bombers, who would uh, pull a lever and release a lot of bombs on people. Often had very different reminiscence about the war than those who were infantry soldiers, who, who saw the killing up close. Whereas when you're way, way up there in the sky and these things fall away, you don't see the people who are burned to death as a consequence. That's a really good point. The distinction between, you know, for instance, I'm just making it up off the top of my head, but you can think of an officer that was maybe sent to, to uh, somewhere like England in World War II and, and was stationed there and and did a lot of non-frontline activity, let's say, versus the experience of someone that was actually perhaps sent onto the beaches of, of Normandy. That would probably be a completely different perspective, would it not? And, and when you talk to people, you find different kinds of stories. And the second group of people are usually much more reticent about about talking about it. And if you can get them to talk about it, you'll understand why. But then the other thing is, let's try to be honest with language. Mm -hmm. When we talk about these terms like collateral damage, ask what does collateral damage mean? It means that some innocent person who wasn't even a combatant uh, or uh, under arms is blown up, uh, has a, a, a leg torn off, uh, is burned, 
And then we say, well, there was some collateral damage. And I think right. we should understand what that means. And then with regard to language, um, shift from the passive into the active. We read so many people died in a war. Oh, well, it just sounds like they just kind of fell asleep and closed their eyes, uh, like you might imagine a peaceful death. That's not what happened to them. They were killed. And I think that we should be uh, honest with ourselves, including if you think a war or military action is justified as an act of self-defense, if it's met the criteria uh, that you think are appropriate for uh, engaging in self-defense, but be honest and say, these people were killed. They didn't just go and lie down and close their eyes someplace. So I think that honesty in language, it's is important. It's not an accident that people use the passive tense uh, and other linguistic tricks to cover up the real nature of violence. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Tom Palmer today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. My guest is Tom Palmer today. Tom, before the break, you were talking about the language we use uh, when we talk about conflict and war. And I, and I thought that was a really, really great point. And I want to just touch on that again before we move on. Do you think that we should be distancing ourselves from, from the language of the state when we think of war? For instance, for example, it's very common for people to talk about France and England are at war, for example, when it comes to history or whatever it may be. You know, Germany and the Allies are 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 at war. Should, should we be adjusting to say things like, you know, especially in the modern period, the American government is, you know, at war or trying to hunt down terrorists. Like, that would be like a more accurate description. Yes, I think we should try to make things more concrete, uh, for one thing. Uh, many years ago, I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a bibliophile, and I, I love used bookstores. And uh, about 40 years ago, I came across a copy of uh, Imperialism and World Pro Politics by Professor Parker T. Moon, who's professor at Columbia University. Uh, 1926 book is really wonderful book, and he he helped to open my eyes. He said, when we talk about uh, international conflict, violence, imperialism, colonialism, and so on, mm -hmm. it's so comfortable and convenient to use personal pronouns. France invaded Tunisia. Then we can ask, well, why would France do that? Maybe France was angry with Tunisia or something like that. But he said, actually, there isn't any France and Tunisia in the sense of big people who have who get angry or uh, are piqued or something, uh, or even who have collective interests. It would be more accurate to say that in a territory of, of uh, uh, so many hectares with such and such a population, describing France, some of those people convinced 30,000 others of them uh, to go to this other place, Tunisia, which is a such and such a territory with so many people, 
and conquer it and take it over. And then you get the real questions of political science. Who were the few who made those decisions? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did they convince other people to uh, go along with it? What were their motivations and so on? But when we just say, well, France invaded or, or colonized Tunisia, we miss all of the interesting and important questions of political science. And I mentioned that they're interesting and important, not merely like a, as a hobby that, I, oh, I mean, that's interesting to me, but they're the things that we want to understand if we're to bring about a better and more peaceful world. And this group personification of saying America, I know Canadians find that annoying, so we'll say the United States of America, uh, or Brazil, or Indonesia, or China, or what have you, uh, are at war, uh, or are having conflicts, is so deeply misleading. And we've heard this now in the language of economic warfare that Donald Trump likes to right. toss around uh, when he identifies the great enemies of America. Uh, those, of course, are China, in his view, uh, and naturally Canada, which he designated a national security threat. Everyone should understand one of the greatest threats to the United States, obviously, is Canada. Uh, whenever I think of existential threats to the U.S., Canada immediately comes to mind. Uh, actually, that's ironic, uh, the, uh, uh, not the case. Canada is one of the most wonderful neighbors any country could possibly hope for. Uh, peaceful relations for hundreds of years, even though the U.S. invaded them in 1812, which Canadians know, and no Americans in south of the border understand that. It was about uh, fighting Britain and, and pressing seamen and so on. Uh, but this notion that nations are opposed to nations, well, that's ridiculous and absurd. I don't have any reason to be opposed to China or people in China. I have lots of friends who live in China, and I I work with them. Uh, they're my my friends. I don't hate them because they live in China or they speak a, their primary language is different from mine. But this mentality that because Donald Trump is against Xi Jinping or Trump and his cronies and the people. Uh, that he uh, works with who want to uh, keep out uh, imports and so on, that that means somehow I'm against China. This is a, it's just really an assault, not merely on language, but on the human mind itself to suggest that I have some reason to be hostile to people who live in China because Donald Trump uh, doesn't like Xi Jinping. To, take the, to, to simplify it. We could talk about a lot of terminology, but even the world, word war itself is abused, right? Like we, and, it, and it's really infused into our culture and language now. There's a global war on something, you know, there's a war on terror, right? And, and that this really, again, sort of takes us away from accurate language of what we're actually talking about. It, and that could go so many directions too, right? Like has, there, has, has a country ever officially declared war on the faction, especially the United States, on the faction it's talking about? Or is this, you know, defense action on, on executive order renewal, right? Like, you know, we have to really get into what's going on here when we talk about the word war. So much easier to declare war on an enemy that cannot be identified. Terror isn't a person, it's not a club, it's not a group, it's not even a state. It's a tactic. It's a tactic used by groups to get what they want by terrorizing the population, whether it was the Tamil Tigers uh, or uh, the Shining Path in Peru. 
or uh, Al-Qaeda uh, or others, that what they have in common is a tactic. And you cannot wage war on a tactic. How do you know you won? Right. Right? You're waging war on an abstraction. Uh, the war on drugs is another one, right? It's absurd. There's no war on drugs. There's a war on people who consume drugs or, or, or use drugs or traffic in drugs or, or produce drugs. But there's no war on drugs per se. It's, it's absurd. But it allows us to import into these other discussions all of the uh, deeply emotional language that comes from warfare, hatred of the other side, solidarity, martial virtue, conformity, obedience, all of these uh, principles of violent conflict, organized violent conflict, are then imported into these other uh, questions. Even a war on hunger, I think, is an, is an obscenity, uh, frankly, uh, to, to put it in those terms. So uh, it leads into another question that I think is important for us to recognize, and that that is the war supercharges tribal Mm, proclivities in the human mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A very good book, which I found quite stimulating by uh, uh, Joshua Green, uh, a professor of psychology at Harvard University, is called Moral Tribes, really readable. I encourage people to pick this book up and, and uh, enjoy it. And he points out uh, that human beings have innate propensities that are even, we could say, hardwired into the structure of the mind to cooperate with other human beings, that the world is in some ways much rosier than, than we're presented in a Hobbesian framework, mm -hmm. and so that there's always this inability uh, of people to cooperate. We're, we're made for cooperation. So it seems very rosy. But then as he points out, well, there's this problem, and that is that a great many of these mm, psychological, mental subroutines, if you will, for cooperation, are in order to enable us to cooperate as a group to exterminate the other group of people. Right. And so we have these this kind of hyper-cooperative -cooper uh, modules, but for the purpose of facilitating conflict with other groups. And so the question is, how can we overcome those? And he argues trade is one way. Um, there was a, a very important member of the German parliament, an economist in the 19th century, a great enemy of Bismarck, uh, John Prince Smith, who put it very neatly, said, if only we could come to see uh, foreigners as potential customers, we'd be much less likely to shoot them as a consequence. And, and, but when we, we hype up this hyper-cooperative um, uh, mental routines, for the purpose of destroying the other group, uh, it, it takes us out of our normal consciousness. Uh, in a way, we're not, we absolve ourselves of responsibility for the most terrible and monstrous of crimes. Uh, Robert Musel, who was a really great Austrian novelist, one of the great novels in the German language, Der Mann ohne Eigenschaften, The Men Without Qualities, really a great, almost unreadable book. It's so, so long. But uh, he was quite a brilliant man and a very careful observer of psychology. He had a doctorate in psychology and was also a mathematician, an engineer, a novelist, and playwright, and so on. And he asked this question in 1921 about what is the nation? And he goes through various categories. What could it be? What is the nation? 
Is it all the people who share the language of Goethe or the, the this high literature? Well, that doesn't make sense. Your average German farmer or taxi driver doesn't read Goethe, right. but French intellectuals do. You'd have a nation of intellectuals, including people who speak French and German and English and Russian and Polish. Uh, what is it? And he goes through and he dismisses these and he says, finally, the nation is the great construct by which we ev evade responsibility for the things that we do. I didn't commit these crimes. You didn't commit these crimes. The nation did. It did it. The things did themselves in a way. And so people, in, in effect, are able to engage in behavior that in a normal frame of mind, they would recoil from. It's too horrible to contemplate. But when engaged in this martial mentality of war for the nation, they'll commit any crime and feel little or no remorse afterwards. And on that exact note, on, on the national sentiment and what that does, I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, essentially the discussion of how this sort of idea of of uh, you know, pride in your nation and militarism combined sometimes in the culture. So I, let's take one example, for instance. There is, um, and of course, there's except exceptions, and people are people and individuals, and they all think different ways. But I think it's fair to say, generally speaking, one interesting contrast would be between uh, what I can call the Canadian-style Remembrance Day, which is looked upon here on November 11th. It's observed on November 11th, I should say. And uh, the idea behind that, again, there's exceptions and people have different opinions, but the idea behind that is you are remembering the horrors of war. You're paying tribute to people who have fallen in the war, lest we forget is the slogan, the horrors of war and then the people who have died. Uh, contrast that with uh, the more than one holiday that happens in the United States, whether it's a Veterans Day or Armed Forces Day, um, jets flying over football stadiums, things like that. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what that kind of does if it's actually embedded into the culture. To, to me, although it might not be directly doing it in some instances, it's, again, kind of in, enforcing on a lot of people the things you were just describing, this idea that, that we're in this nation together. And oh, on top of that, that's directly tied to, to military strength and something to be proud of in that regard. Yes, so the, the thing that makes you proud of your country uh, is its ability to destroy other people. I do see a difference, and I can't claim to be as immersed in Canadian popular culture as you are, but I've always been impressed and touched by the red poppy uh, that people wear, and it's a remembrance of all the people who fell, all the people who died. Uh, in the U.S., I do think actually much of this militarism has also faded. Memorial Day is a, is a day for not really to memorialize anything anymore, just people have picnics and take a day off. <clears throat> uh, when I grew up, people would put flowers on, on uh, grave sites. I mean, it was some memorial activity. I think less so. One of the most touching I have experienced was Anzac Day um, in Australia, and the it was such a sobering event, the remembrance of people who died, and I have to say, for nothing, <laughs> just for nothing. But it is sober, there's not any rah, rah, we're number one, we kick their asses, and so on. Right, right. And after the war, the relationship between Turks and Australians, which persists to this day as a generally friendly one, 
that those Australians and New Zealanders who died uh, pointlessly at Gallipoli uh, were memorialized and were remembered uh, you know, as being <clears throat> buried in Turkish soil. And the Turks said that uh, their families and parents were always welcome to come. So I got a little, little teary, but witnessing those uh, somber ceremonies in Australia had a great impact on me. That's how we should remember war. Not rah, rah, we kick their asses. Like I completely agree. And, and, on, and on that note, I, I want to ask you, and, and I'm sure you've heard this argument before, some people claim and this might go back to just the category of people that we called sort of the the uh, our armchair and keyboard warriors on these topics. But some people do claim that, you know, national and, and cultural clashes will happen. They're inevitable. And when war happens, it's sort of just basically carrying that forward. You know, it, it's it, if it's a political clash, war is just another means to go through that. Is Is this ultimately, at the end of the day, a form of a self-fulfilling prophecy by the, by these nationalists and people that that think like this. Like I hear this argument a lot with people. Well, this is inevitable, right? That this 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 war on terror can only bring us to this point where you have your military around the world with hundreds, thousands of bases, and that's the way way it's got to be. What what do you say to people like that when talk about the inevitable cultural of clashes, the inevitable wars? Well, I think the most important point is to see these as factual errors rather than just moral errors. I mean, hmm. one could rise these as moral errors in some ways, but they're factual mistakes as well. So when I think about Samuel Huntington's study on the Clash of Civilizations, it's a very interesting, very influential book, has a number of interesting and smart observations and insights in it, but his fundamental view of rise and fall of civilizations is how much of the territory is subject to their military control. And I go through the calculus in the book, I look at it, contrast when the Netherlands was uh, the colonial power in Indonesia, they were in control of it, then they lost somehow as Indonesia became independent, and in, in uh, Huntington's case, that was a retreat of Western civilization. But if you look at the data on longevity, on uh, income, on wealth, all of those things, both countries were much better off as a consequence of the decolonization, of the withdrawal of the military occupation from Indonesia. Uh, in what sense was the West retreating or worse off? They were much better off when they trade with Indonesians. If you want something from Indonesia, you buy it from them. You don't have to send your sons to go die uh, to, do, to have control of it. So it's a factual mistake to argue that somehow it's good for your society if you dominate another one. In fact, you're worse off as a consequence, as is the other party or group as well. But then there's another element, and here we find, I think, the influence of one of the more malevolent figures in uh, intellectual thought or uh, intellectual life in the 20th century, and that's Carl Schmidt, who was a friend of Ernst Junger, whom I mentioned earlier. Schmidt has had an enormous in influence and he sees irreconcilable conflicts as fundamental to human life, not something to be overcome, but something that forms the foundation of our solidarity together is our conflict with that other group of people. Uh, and he argues that the uh, defining characteristic or feature of the political is the distinction between 
the friend and the enemy. And the enemy is the one whom you are willing actually to kill uh, in organized collective action. And he sees that as foundational to politics. And what is most interesting is it is clear in the reading of his writings that he believes that the only way to have friends is to have enemies. And I think that is actually also another factual mistake. Uh, as I mentioned with regard to Joshua Green, we can generate feelings of solidarity and buddy feeling and connectedness by working together to kill and destroy uh, the enemy. That's true. But to think that's the only foundation for social cohesion is to indicate a, a, a poverty, a psychological poverty. There are all kinds of other things that unite us together and can generate love and friendship. Think about Aristotle's uh, the, the fifth chapter of the Nicomachean Ethics on friendship and the multitude of different kinds of friendships that people can have. Uh, so, but this notion that we have irreconcilable divisions is, uh, uh, I think, morally obtuse and factually in error. It is also what permeates contemporary populist discourse. They take this right. language in foreign relations and import it within the uh, political body itself that you designate the enemy. The enemy, that is what will create cohesion among the authentic or true people. So one of the most turgid and uh, 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 unenjoyable books I've ever read in my life was Ernesto Laclau's On Populist Reason. And he lays out the fundamental uh, logic of populism, and it's about identifying the enemy. The enemy is what gives cohesion to the otherwise unconnected set of unmet demands fueled by anger and rage that constitutes the populist movement. And what he calls the empty signifier, so all this uh, absurd language from um, Saussurean linguistics and Lacanian psychoanalytics and so on. Uh, once you cut through the bullshit, you, you can understand what he's talking about. The empty signifier that generates cohesion to the populist movement of the true people is the dictator. It's Mussolini or Juan Perón or whoever. Uh, that's the empty signifier. But again, and this is reflective of what I mentioned earlier, uh, it's quite common for people who advocate uh, totalitarianism, uh, murder, and so on, that they use language that's almost impenetrable. You have to spend a lot of time to figure out what it is they're talking about. Right. And George Orwell put it in his wonderful essay on politics and the English language. He says, uh, um, you won't normally find a comfortable English professor to say, in defense of Soviet communism, I believe in killing all your enemies when you can get the results you want by doing so. Instead, he'll say, they talk about, well, the rigors that the Russian people have been called on to uh, undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete experience and so on. And once you cut through to that, it means when you can get the things you want, you're justified to kill as many people as you want, which is, of course, what the Soviet Union did. And that's what Laclau is proposing also, that we should use this kind of language to obscure what is just pure violence visited on other people. Uh, the enemy, that this language of enemies that's drawn internal to the body politic, can be anybody. Uh, for Carl Schmitt, it was the Jews, unsurprisingly, as a, he became a member of the National Socialist Party in Germany. 
the Jews were the enemy. It wasn't just the outsiders, the Americans or whomever. It was the Jews. Uh, it can be uh, an ethnic minority, a religious minority, a sexual minority. Vladimir Putin has decided that it's a little sensitive to talk about Jews these days in uh, Russia. So it's homosexuals who are the enemies of the nation. It, or it can be gypsies, or in the American case, what I call the M&Ms, the Mexicans and Muslims, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. demonized by Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon and other uh, authoritarian, collectivist, populist uh, leaders. And um, uh, they, they designate some enemy of the people in order to generate this cohesion, this solidarity uh, among their base, to use the term that's not being used in American politics. Heading down the same road there, but but switching lanes a little bit. You you mentioned uh, about the way people use language and, and you know basically absolve themselves of responsibility for what they're really saying before they go to war and before they can you know uh, basically get into things that they have to justify. But in in one of your essays, you also talk about accountability. That is in, in the retrospect. You note that the losing side in a conflict or a war is often held accountable and punished for its crimes that they committed during war or in a conflict, but the winning side rarely is. And for people that haven't looked into this too much or thought about it before, it might be uncomfortable for them to start thinking of, quote, their side as one that might also have some uh, some non-righteous blood on its hands from a conflict. But one thing I like that you point out in, in your essay is, is that if we want to be serious about this, accountability is, is a, something we need to do on principle and look at all sides. We can't just let the winners to use the trope, write the history and absolve themselves of responsibility. I think very, very much that uh, history and journalism, which is like history written in the present tense virtually, uh, is very much about holding people to account for what they actually do and cutting through the uh, language of national greatness and um, uh, collective solidarity and all of that sort of thing to to just get down to what is it that's being done here. I remember in uh, Germany would sometimes hear some older people who were very queasy about what had been done in the Third Reich, and they would say, well, when the Jews went away. Hmm. Really? Really? Is that what happened? They went away? Right. (laughs) They were kidnapped. They were hauled away. Uh, Everything that they had was stolen from them and distributed to party members, Uh, loyal Volksgenossen, ethnic comrades. Of, of the Reich, and those people were sent off to slave labor or murder. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so easy. We, we tried to avoid responsibility of saying, well, when, when they went away, um, I think we should have very robust, straight language about exactly what is happening. And I'll mention again one of my heroes, Frederick Bastiat, who was a great peace advocate. He's known as an economist, but I think he probably would have preferred to have been known as a peace advocate, which is what he was during his time. He was a great campaigner for uh, uh, peaceful relations among nations and for free trade. By the way, Frederick Passy, the first winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, was the great free trade advocate in uh, France and a student of uh, the ideas of Bastiat. And um, he, he said that we should demystify, didn't use that language, what the state is all about. When state violence is used, uh, be clear about it. So again, that wonderful essay, What is Seen and What is Not Seen, he talks about the Monsieur Proibon, the Mr. Protectionist who want, in France who wants to stop 
Belgian uh, iron workers from selling their goods to French people, nails and horseshoes and things like that. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not going to let them pursue their profit instead of mine. So I'm going to go to the frontier, strap on my pistols and a sword and a, take a rifle or carbine, and I'll shoot them. I'll kill them. Anyone who comes there seeking his own profit instead of mine, that will teach him. Then he says, oh, well, hmm, there's a problem. Maybe they'll shoot back. Could expose me to danger. And he says, Monsieur Proibon, Mr. Protectionist, resigned himself sadly to just being free like everyone else when he thought, mon Dieu, there's a great law factory in Paris. I can go to Paris and they'll make a law that will force the customers of iron products who might buy them from Belgians to pay for an armed body of people to use violence against them for trying to buy iron at a lower price. That's what it's about. And I believe we should systematically talk about the fundamentals of what is happening when people interact on the basis of these coercive relationships and not talk about securing our borders or things of that sort. Say, look, what it means is if someone comes across the border to sell you uh, something, you're going to shoot them. Right. That's it, right? Uh, it's, similarly, if you take the war on drugs, people say, well, we want to express our condemnation of marijuana. I say, okay, fine. Sign a petition. Uh, put up a billboard that says marijuana is bad. That, that will do it. What you want is to pay people, called police officers, to smash down the doors of other people, go in and execute them or grab them and drag them out and put them in a cage. By the way, I don't smoke marijuana. I don't like marijuana. I don't want to be around marijuana. Uh, this is not about wanting marijuana. I just want to be honest about what happens in so-called war on drugs. That's what happens. And th to uh, put it in these abstract phrases about society expressing its moral opinion is absurd. The last point, I remember years ago, um, uh, one of the uh, dimmer anti-gay advocates in the United States, a woman named Anita Bryant, who was campaigned uh, against homosexuality. Uh, but to her credit, she came to a realization later in life. She said, well, homosexual activity is condemned in the Bible, as she understood it. So we will put people in prison so there won't be any homosexual activity. Right? And someone said, uh, Mrs. Bryant, it just there's a lot of it in prison. It's just involuntary. Right, exactly. Well, rape. And, and again, she, she wasn't the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, as they say, but, but she apparently didn't know that. And I think it helped her to change her opinion. But her view was, well, we're just expressing uh, our opinion about sexuality. So, no, you're, you're using violence against, violence against people, putting them in a prison, into a cage, where they're now going to be raped. Congratulations. Uh, and so I, I believe in bluntness in this regard and cutting through the clouds of, of, of fog or it's like the, the ink that a squid shoots out. Right. So you can see where it is, right? It's intended to obscure what's really happening. And I think language should be used to understand, to communicate, to illuminate, and not to cover up 
criminality. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Half half the battle often in these conversations, whether it's policing, war, whatever, the history of, of war or, or a conflict that might be coming up is half the battle is, is decoding what it is people are actually talking about instead of just accepting their language. The, the one question I want to ask you before we head to our formal wrap up, because our time is pretty much wound down here, is in one of your essays, you do say that ultimately the burden of proof is on those who want to start or go to war. It's not the other way around. When someone says, we got to go invade so-and-so, we got to deploy troops here, it's not people people like us, our job to say, well, hold on, let, let us explain to you why we shouldn't do this. It's, it's their job job to prove it. Do, do you see instances where uh, that burden of proof can be met? And I know that's a, that's a big topic, and uh, but at a high level, are there instances where someone can meet that burden of proof? And, and what, what would that actually look like if, if war or conflict could be justified? Well, certainly defensive war. So to take you know an obvious example, when a country is invaded by the army of another country, and you say, well, let's go and fight to defend our country, I think that that's eminently justifiable. It would be a little weird to say that when... Um, the Soviet Union or the Third Reich or, or Communist China or whatever, other countries, or even a democratic country, invades another country that the burden of proof is on those who are defending to defend themselves. Right. I, th- I think it's met. Uh, the question is, if you are engaging in a war of aggression, there's such a high burden against that. The argument that is sometimes made is if we don't strike them, they're going to strike us. Okay, well, really make that argument then. Uh, The burden of proof is on on the one who's advancing that. Now, this argument was engaged in the Iraq war. Uh, There was an attempt to do that when they talked about within 45 minutes, they could have weapons of mass destruction and so on. Uh, I actually listened to those debates very carefully at the time that it happened, and I remember when uh, Colin Powell, who quite reluctantly was kind of dragooned into making the case in front of the United Nations Security Council, and he had these pictures of some trucks with what, as far as we know, were weather balloons. But this didn't come close to discharging any uh, a burden of proof that the Iraqi state was about to launch some sort of attack on Great Britain or 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 other countries that failed. And yet they were given a pass. The Congress uh, voted for authorization of the use of military force and other countries um, also took actions to support that invasion. Uh, It was not justified. Now, I want to add one other thing, though. That is not to say that the regime that was overthrown was some kind of wonderful place. It wasn't uh, right, of course not. Yeah, a fairy dust land where everything was fantastic. Uh, Saddam Hussein was a really a brutal criminal. I did spend a fair amount of time in Iraq after the invasion. Was there a number of times uh, met with Iraqis who had been brutalized. Uh, by Saddam's uh, regime, especially in Kurdistan and and, uh, some other groups, um, the Shia population and so on, Uh, we can acknowledge those things and say, yes, that's true. It did not justify the existence of those crimes, did not justify yet another crime uh, such as was perpetrated in this case. Unfortunately, many people fall into the fallacy of thinking 
if it's wrong to invade Iraq, then it must be the case that the ruler of Iraq was a good guy. And we, we heard that from a number of people. Robert Fisk, who just passed away, I think one could argue, fell into that category. And, um, and I think that's morally bankrupt. It, it's completely bankrupt. It is, again, an abdication of our responsibilities to be honest, uh, to use our minds and to try to understand the world, uh, to say that if war is not justified, then the state who would be the target of that war must be morally good. They can be real bastards and evil. Mm -hmm. And we sympathize with people fighting against them. But that is not the same as mobilizing your state resources for an act of aggression. And then, and then even if it is decided by many people, uh, reasonably moral, moral people that on principle, something is justified, or there is force that can be, you know, used, then you enter a whole question of tactics, right? Like ultimately, just because uh, something might be justified, or maybe a time where military actions needed doesn't give the powers that be carte blanche to just do whatever they want, tactically speaking, then we enter a whole other set of moral discussions, which are very important to have. That's exactly right. And there is a complex body of uh, laws of war uh, that, that uh, govern such matters. And I think those are, are serious, serious issues. Uh, and here, let me make one other comment that the United States military and the Canadian military also have done lots of bad things uh, around the world. They're not all uh, clean-handed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also the case that they tend to be more governed by, by rule of law and by accountability than the militaries of many other countries. And so we have seen uh, soldiers who have been subject to uh, military justice and imprisonment for uh, uh, torturing or murdering prisoners. Uh, and so the law also comes to play in governing the military. So I, I don't, I think it's important that people not have the, under, the, the misunderstanding that some of all militaries are the same. They aren't. Some are much more brutal than others. Lastly, in this regard, I'm very disturbed by what has happened in the United States where convicted war criminals, people who committed horrific crimes, were tried under military justice, uh, were accused by fellow members of their units who testified about the crimes that they committed, have been pardoned by the current president of the United States and called heroes. And this... Um, it's hard to describe my emotional response to that. It was sickening, just sickening, because those people really were guilty of monstrous crimes. They were not heroes. And their fellow soldiers were the ones who reported them for their criminal activities. I think that completely speaks for itself. And, and Tom, right now, like our time is basically completely wound down here. So I'm going to push us into the, the formal wrap up here. So, so in every episode, I want to make sure that the guest actually has the last word. So let me say we've talked about a lot. Let, let's try and bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today, if we can. So, so let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on, on what war is good for in the spirit of our of our question. if you, At the end of the day, if you want to give someone one or two takeaways from this conversation, what would those actually be? Uh, number one, that there is a robust presumption for peace and against war. If someone's going to make the case for going to war, they have to make the case, and there's a very high burden of proof. Maybe they can meet it. I think there are some occasions when they can't, but the burden is on them. 
Second thing is that we should use our language to understand and illuminate and not to occlude or cover up uh, the true nature of what violent conflict is about. People don't die in war, they are killed by other people. So I think uh, honesty uh, is very important. And then the third thing that in some senses of the most significance is that if we really want to have peace, we need to ask what makes war less likely. And there, I think that the evidence is simply overwhelming. And I have in that book, which people can download, if you search for Peace, Love, and Liberty, Palmer, PDF, you'll find a copy you can download or you, or you can purchase a copy online, um, that free trade is the best way to promote peace among nations. It's not the only way. It's not the only thing. But it is probably the most powerful way of making war less likely. Some people say, ah, well, there were two countries, and they did have some trade, and they still went to war. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the nature of human social relations. We should talk about what makes things more or less likely. It's not the case. You can make it absolutely logically impossible. That's not the world we live in. But trade makes war less likely, and that's a goddamn good thing. Tom Palmer, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure for me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.